did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, everyone, and thank you for coming to our panel in the Ethical True Crime Podcast, How to Make One, What Not to Do. Uh, my name is Rebecca Lavoie. I'm the host of a show called Crime Writers On, on which we talk a whole lot about what true crime podcasts should do and shouldn't do. And when I was asked to do this panel, I was kind of given the choice of what kind of podcasters, like who would be on your dream panel to talk this through. And I actually succeeded in getting all four of the people that I wanted to talk to. So to kick it off, I'd love to go down the line. Could you introduce yourself? Uh, what is your podcast? And just tell us a little bit about it. Sure. My name is Connie Walker. I'm host of Missing and Murdered. The last season was called Finding Cleo. Uh, and it's a podcast that focuses on the unsolved cases of missing or murdered Indigenous women and girls, primarily in Canada. My name is Natalie Jablonski, and I'm a producer on the In the Dark podcast. Uh, it's an investigative podcast, and our most recent season uh, looked at the story of Curtis Flowers, a black man on, in Mississippi on death row who's been tried six times for the same crime. My name is Justin Ling. I'm the host of season three of Uncover with the CBC. It's called The Village. Our uh, season looked at uh, a serial killer who was arrested for targeting gay men in Toronto's gay village. Um, but we use that as a lens to go back into a, a raft of unsolved cold cases from the 1970s and 1980s and sort of talk about the kind of cultural significance of that and the, the, the environment in which those happened and ask the question about whether or not he potentially had a hand uh, in any of those murders. My name is Amber Hunt. I host Accused. I'm a journalist, have been for 22 years, and uh, never set out to make a podcast, but found that it was a really great way to tell a long-form story about a cold case. And so now we are working on our third season. One of the questions I had for all four of you, I mean, you all work in journalism. None of you makes a podcast that's just talking about cases. You report out the stories. You do the interviews, you travel to get tape, you actually uncover um, what happened, what didn't happen. In the case of In the Dark, you do data reporting. Uh, we should mention your podcast, the case that you reported on in your second season, made it all the way to the Supreme Court and resulted in the overturning of a conviction. Kind of a big deal. Um, how do you decide which stories to report? Like, how did you choose the Curtis Flowers case? Yeah, I mean, uh, in the case of the, the Curtis Flowers stories, that was a tip that came from a listener. So we got hundreds of tips at the end of our first season, and we read all of them. And this one uh, just really stood out to us, um, said there's this man in Mississippi, tried six times for the same crime. And that's like immediately kind of jumps out as like, what? Like, how can that be? But also, I think a key for us is not just that there's a compelling story at the center, but also that it tells like a bigger story. And in this case, it was the story of like the power of prosecutors in the U.S. and how that is like relevant, not just for Curtis Flowers, but also potentially for, for anyone involved in the justice system. So. 
There's also sometimes some interest in a community that you are a part of or not a part of and wanting to look at something. Connie and Justin, I know you both reported stories for the CBC where you identify yourself in the podcast as relating to the community, being a part of the community. How do you draw that line when you're telling stories about your people and, you know, working with sources and, you know, getting to the objective journalistic truth while also, you know, not necessarily being a part of the story, but really having a deeper understanding of it than a reader or listener. Mike, let's start with you, Connie. Sure. I think it's a, I think it's a huge asset, actually, for this kind of reporting. And I think that in particular with the Indigenous community in Canada and the United States, um, it's a community that's been so underrepresented in media and misrepresented. And so when you think about reporting in Indigenous communities, I think that you have to think about all the stereotypes that people have about who we are and what's important. And I think that because I come from that community, because I have that experience, because um, I have personal connections to the issues that I'm reporting on, then I feel like that actually gives me the tools I need to help connect the dots in a more meaningful way to help people understand what the truth is. And the thing that I like about podcasting so much is that, you know, I've been a journalist also for 20 years, primarily in television, uh, but the kind of journalist that is like, Connie Walker, CBC News, Toronto, or whatever, right? And, and I love podcasting because you actually can bring yourself and your true self to the story in a way that feels natural. And it really, I think, in this era of, you know, people questioning whether or not they can trust journalists or journalism, gives us an opportunity to kind of peel back the curtain on our process and tell the truth about how so much of journalism is actually subjective, and, you know, from the cases we choose, the people we interview, the, the questions we ask. And I think that being upfront about that and being upfront about how you're making those decisions is actually trusting the listeners um, and, and giving them, you know, the information they need to be objective and to, to decide that for themselves in a way. How would you answer that question, Justin? <laughs> I'm going to be a jerk and tell you I hate the question because nobody ever asks straight white men. Right. Whether or not they're That's objective. why I asked the question. Because, <laughs> so I, I appreciate yeah. it because it, it, it's good to, to point, put it out there. I mean, nobody ever asks business journalists whether or not they have trouble being objective when they go out and party with their banker friends every night. Nobody ever asks small town reporters whether or not they're objective because they know all their neighbors, right? So I think it's only an asset. I mean, the fact that you know that community, the fact that you know who to call, the fact that you don't need to have your hand held to figure out the intricacies and nuances of how the community operates, of their lingo, of their slang, of you know how they identify or how they talk to each other like that is only an asset like I don't see liabilities there I mean obviously you still have to kind of run like a conflict of interest screen or you know you have to think about potential conflicts when you're talking to people that you may know or you have a relationship with that's a given but that's a given in any type of reporting right so I think it's only an asset I mean when dealing with when we were making the village um, you know I had producers who weren't in the community and so it was usually me trying to you know figure out where um, you know, we had to find potential sources, you know, how um, you know, we, we treat certain issues, um, like whether it's HIV non-disclosure or whether you know, it's, it's sexual orientation or pronoun usage. Um, but that's good. I mean, the fact that you don't have to do that extra amount of work to figure all that out, to bring someone else in to figure it out for you, is an asset. It saves you time. It makes the final product better and cleaner, and it removes a lot of the confusion around a lot of those questions. So I, I think it's only an asset. I'll say, too, I think in the case of 
both of your podcasts, and this is the reason I asked the question, because I don't think it speaks to bias. I don't think it speaks to story choice. I think it speaks to an ability to go deeper and to sometimes push harder. You know, I listened to In the Dark, and one of the remarkable things about that podcast is you're all from Minnesota, went to live in a community that you don't belong in, you know, that a lot of people there would say anyway, listening to the podcast and the work that you have to do to engender trust with sources, to be able to push so hard and that people still feel like they can run away from you and not talk to you. It's an interesting balance there. I mean, I know that's also one that you think about, Amber. I mean, your stories are both stories that you chose to cover for a reason. You came in somewhat from the outside of those stories and you had to learn to relate to them in your own way. You bring a lot of who you are into your journalism. Can you talk about that? Podcasting for me has been really interesting because of the curtain being lifted. But a big part for me is that when you're talking about subjectivity, every step in my career along the way has led to who I am today. That, and, and so the book that I wrote 10 years ago is helping excuse me, to inform the question that I'm asking today. And in a podcast, I can actually kind of explain that to you. When I uh, mentioned that I took a polygraph, it was because of a story in 2000, you know? So for me, there's this cool mix of being able to like inject the experience that I've had without making it about me, but letting my experiences shape and inform the story that I'm trying to tell. Now, Natalie, you, both seasons of In the Dark uh, were very dark and deep and tackled some really difficult subject matter. All of your podcasts really have. Um, One of the things that In the Dark really, for me, makes it so extraordinary is that it is dry. I mean, I don't think that there's really, you can't point to anything about In the Dark and say like, this was a sexy, you know, for lack of a better term, like, oh shit moment where they like dropped in this crazy music and made your like gut like fall out from underneath you. But it's also really entertaining and you want to listen to the next episode when you finish an episode. As a producer on the show, you know, doing very straight in-depth journalism and also understanding that to build audience to get people to pay attention, it has to be entertaining. How do you guys talk about that on that team? I think we want the structure of the story. I mean, we primarily want it to be driven by the journalism and like we have an actual question that we're setting out to answer at the beginning. Um, And we want that to kind of drive the whole narrative. And so we want to have actual findings that we can use to like propel the story. I mean, so I think like a lot of it is just having that like journalistic core um, to be able to structure around that. But yeah, we definitely do think about certain moments that like we might want on tape, like for example, with some of the data reporting, our data reporter, Will Craft, like we want him to tell Madeline his findings for the first time while we're recording. So that would be like an an example of like, we got to think ahead about this. Like we want to make sure we have that, like preserve that kind of like little bit of surprise or um, that we like get that on tape. So Yeah, I mean, we do definitely think about how to get some of those moments. And you also, we were talking about it before this panel, episodes have to end in a place where you want to listen to the next one. And that can be challenging. Uh, Connie, your podcast talks about the uh, mass kidnappings, basically, of indigenous children. Uh, It talks about how many of them were lost in the system, abused in the system. It talks about you know, this legacy of, of racism and 
the squashing of a whole culture in your country, and yet you have to make an episode that ends on a cliffhanger that makes somebody want to listen to the next one. How do you guys talk about that on your team? You know, it's because the panel is about like ethical true crime. And I feel like um, what we've done is actually trick people into learning about Canadian history by saying, oh, we've got a really great mystery for you. Like, I mean, not that obviously that was the goal of the podcast is to try to help this family get answers about their sister. But my goal as a journalist has been for 20 years is to help tell the truth about the lives and the realities that Indigenous people live in Canada. And for a really, really long time, there wasn't interest in those stories. I remember pitching my first um, story about a girl that I knew from back home who had gone missing um, when I was like an associate producer on a national current affairs show. And it was the same summer that a white woman had gone missing in Toronto who was blonde and she was on the cover of the national newspapers and she was covered on the national news um, every night. And, and Amber, the girl who I knew from back home, barely got any local coverage. And I remember pitching a story that we examined why these two cases had gotten such different treatments in the media. And my boss at the time, putting her hand up to stop me and say, this isn't another poor Indian story, is it? You know. So I feel like for the first time in my career, there's like an opportunity to not just report on this really important issue, but to tell the bigger story about the truth about Canadian history that people don't know. But a way to engage people in that is really effective if you use the true crime thing and if you use the mystery. And because people are, the reality is they're just not gonna stay engaged, right? If, if I asked you guys, are you interested in an eight hour documentary about indigenous people in Canada and Canadian history? Some people might say yes, but I don't think a lot of you would. Um, but if you, if you can, like, I, I feel like that's why I love podcasting and true crime podcasting in particular, because it's such an effective way to entertain people, but also deliver the journalism. So there are a lot of true crime podcasts out there. Uh, you know, I talked earlier about the podcasts that just talk about cases and don't do journalism. But there are also a lot of true crime podcasts out there that are trying to do journalism or playing at journalism or sometimes just bungling around and calling it journalism. And it's my turn. Yes. <laughs> One of those things. And it's almost like there are these tropes that have come up in shows like that. Um, one of them being like, let me show you how I did the work. So now I have to listen to 20 minutes of tape of me trying to make a phone call or, you know, me arguing with somebody about something that isn't important, just so you can hear that I was there. Um, that kind of stuff happens. Amber, you know, one of the things that I think is a huge misstep and really veering toward the really irresponsible that I hear in a lot of these shows is identifying potential suspects to crimes people who have not been ever looked at by police or perhaps have, but their names have not been public. Can you just explain what those lines should be and how you've dealt with it on your show? Because especially in season one of Accused, you talk pretty deeply about alternative suspects in a crime yes. in a way that was responsible, and yet I think maybe people might not understand where that line is. Thank you. Well, first off, we had meetings constantly to talk about the ethics of what we were about to do because we had a, in my season one, we had a gentleman who had been accused by prosecutors and police. He had been acquitted by a jury. They still believe that he did it. Nope, jury got it wrong, this guy's guilty. Well, when we went through and reinvestigated the case, we found three even identified people from back then that they should have looked at closer. 
So we needed to figure out a way to responsibly explain these three people and why they were at least as deserving as the accused, but not call them, I don't know, killers. Like that seemed like a bad idea. So we, we just had a lot of conversations about, okay, we're going to explain that these are the reasons that the person should be looked at. That does not mean that he is a killer. It just means that there, are, there were blinders put on to these people and what are the reasons for that. So that's how we approached it. We made a point to never say or even let ourselves think that so-and-so killed our victim but rather, like, this is the reason that person should have been looked at. If they hadn't been identified in the original investigative material, that would have been a, a more complicated discussion still. But the fact is, we are dealing with somebody who was branded for 40 years a murderer um, by people in very powerful positions. So the least we can do is lay out reasons that maybe other paths should have been explored. Yeah, and, and just to jump on that, I mean, sometimes you're going to get a name of a suspect from somebody um, or somebody who they believe may have been responsible, um, and you spend two or three mo- or four months looking into them, establishing a case for why they may have done it, and then ultimately concluding you can't use any of it, which is incredibly frustrating. Uh, but that's the reality of it. That happened to us. We had um, a pair of homicides we, we looked at going back to 1978 and 1981, and basically, the suspect lists were never provided to us. Um, we had a, a, a lot of suspects from one of the uh, homicides in Detroit who were scratched off and who were, you know, unlikely uh, culprits. We ended up talking to some people who provided us with two different names, um, one of whom had gone on to commit another homicide of another gay man just a couple years later and who was in the right city at the right time. And the other one was um, a drug dealer who was openly uh, talking about murdering our victim at a bar that night, and, and we had we spent a lot of time at both of them. We used one of their names. We didn't use the other because we didn't think it was um, strong enough to go with it. And but it was a long, drawn out back and forth. Do we use it? Don't we use it? Um, you know, what are the ethics behind it? One of them was still alive. One of them was dead. Um, you know, that helps. yeah, being dead <laughs> does mean, help. Uh, <laughs> for anyone in the room is wondering, you can't legally uh, slander or libel a dead person. Doesn't mean you should say a dead person right. committed a yeah, murder. Yeah, didn't. <laughs> yeah. But the lines there are a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough balancing act. And I think that's what separates, you know, an ethical true crime or an augmented true crime podcast from one that's not, is that a lot of them don't think about this, right? Like, it's, we have a name, it's our responsibility to say the name. Like, no, it's not. You know, there, there is not that rigor that goes behind that thought process in a lot of these other podcasts. Right, you're not a cop. Yeah. You're not a prosecutor. Um, and you have to bring the goods if you're gonna do that. Natalie, you guys... Um, have an alternative suspect that, you know, the most recent episode of In the Dark, you have a guy that the police did look at, but then didn't disclose that they looked at, essentially, Willie James Hemphill. And there's a incredible, if anyone has not heard the most recent episode of In the Dark, I would highly recommend it, confrontation with that suspect uh, in a courthouse, which, if anybody here is a budding journalist, is a wonderful place to try to talk to people because nobody can bring a weapon into a courthouse there are a lot of law enforcement around, and they have to be there at a specific time. So it is like a good setting. Um, but how did you guys talk about that? Because I do think that In the Dark makes a decent case that he could have been the one who did it. So how did you guys talk about whether or not to sort of put that out there? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, yeah, again, something that we, like, talked about. Like, we put a lot of care into the decisions that we made. And, um, you know, when we first talked to this guy, Willie James Hemphill, 
he told us that he was a suspect. So that was like an important fact. And he described this whole um, encounter with law enforcement being in jail for several days, getting fingerprinted, having his shoes taken, and all these things that if he was telling the truth would have resulted in like some potential evidence that uh, was never disclosed to Curtis Flowers' defense and that the juries or all six juries, you know, for all six trials had never heard about. And so for us, the key was the fact that this stuff that sounded like it should exist hadn't been uh, disclosed. And then later on, in the most recent episode, we kind of like went back to him because he had given us um, basically an alibi somewhere he said that he was on the day of uh, these murders that happened back in 1996. And so we later went to try and check that alibi uh, with, some, with basically the person he said he was with, and she said, he wasn't with me. And so at that point, we felt like we needed to publish that fact, uh, but we also needed to go back and bring that to him because we didn't want to just put it out there in the world that, oh, he said this, she said this, I guess it's not, you know, not true. Like we have to sort of bring that finding back to him. To get you mean do the response. journalism. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and so that was, yeah, that was how we ended up there in the courthouse. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat. Available now. One of the criticisms from uh, audiences around true crime stories, and also from a critic like me, is the handling of families of victims. And your stories all come at this in a different way because you're coming into the stories in a different way. I think Finding Cleo especially was very much a story in which it was told through in some ways and around the the family of the victim. Um, How do you negotiate those relationships and how do you draw lines so you are not just becoming, again, like an advocate and you're still staying in that journalistic role but still making sure that the mission of your podcast, which I believe was to get answers for them, holds true. Yeah, those are very tricky relationships to even approach in in a lot of ways because often these are families that have experienced a lot of trauma who obviously lost somebody um, possibly violently. And so even approaching people to talk to them is something that we're really thoughtful about. Christine actually reached out to us um, after the first season of our podcast to ask us to help find her sister. So I feel like obviously they were willing um, and really eager to participate in the podcast, but there were so many times throughout the podcast, the many months of producing the podcast, where that was such a sensitive relationship because, you know, as much as it was a podcast to find out the truth about what happened to their sister, it was also a, an opportunity for them to, to find out the truth about what happened to them as children. And it was really uncovering a lot of things that they had experienced, traumatic experiences that they had had as children. And I think that, you know, I'm learning a lot about trauma-informed journalism and about how trauma uh, impacts people as children, but also throughout their lives. And that's something that I'm, like, a, it's an awesome responsibility 
to know that people have experienced trauma and have been affected by it. And that what you're doing, even if you have the best of intentions, could still be potentially harmful. And so I didn't go to journalism school, um, but I think that if I did, I still wouldn't have necessarily learned how to navigate those kinds of relationships. Because there were times like, you know, we found out the truth about how their sister died and then had to tell them that those kinds of things. And how do you begin that kind of conversation? And I'm really incredibly lucky to have had such an amazing reporting team that I, I've worked with really closely. Um, Jen Fowler, actually, who was on a producer on Finding Cleo, was also a producer on The Village, um, and Marnie Luke, who, who's in the podcast, and, and Heather Evans, so, and, and Mika Anderson. So we had a lot of these conversations about um, how we should approach these relationships, but they become they end up becoming very intense relationships, right? Like we, we were in touch with Cleo and her siblings, um, you know, daily, sometimes we, like weekly for months and months on end. And we're still in touch, you know? I mean, you become close to people and, and get to know them in a really intense way when you're doing this kind of investigative reporting. Yeah, like, it's funny. You said you didn't, I, I did go to journalism school briefly. I dropped out twice. I mean, I liked, <laughs> I liked dropping out so much I did it again. Um, well, I remember this assignment so vividly. It was, I think my first year, um, the assignment was go find somebody who had lost a loved one oh. recently and, and interview them. And the interview would be published nowhere. It this was in journalism school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was a, this was a common thing that I've, I've, I've talked to other older journalists and this was wow. a very common practice. And so people were going through the obituaries in the newspaper and call, cold calling people who had lost a loved one days prior and subjecting them to a bunch of, you know, flat-footed, ham-fisted questions. And... Ever's face right now. Yeah, by the way. I, I, everybody's face actually. <laughs> yeah, I, yes. I teach college. That's that's a really shitty assignment. It was. I was record. so annoyed. I interviewed yeah. my boyfriend at the time about his uh, pet goldfish that had died, and go. and got yeah. a failing grade on it. Um, and was never so happy and proud of a failing grade. But this is um, one thing that I think is lacking, not just from you know a lot of these startup crime podcasts, but also from a lot of reporting these days, which is that there doesn't seem to be a sensitivity for the impact that these stories have on the friends and family of folks who have been murdered or who have died. Um, and they've not seemed to appreciate that it's no longer just, you know, a TV station and a newspaper calling them. It's now three newspapers, five online outlets, a, you know, a thousand people on Facebook who've been following the story and feel like they have some right of answers from these loved ones. I um, mean, in our case, one of the victims uh, of Bruce MacArthur, the serial killer, um, people started going through his Facebook and started compiling evidence that he was in on it. And they started messaging and calling and emailing friends and family of this, this poor guy um, with, you know, probing questions about his responsibility for these murders. Um, you know, I, I spoke at length, I, you know, I still talk frequently to a, a good friend of one of the victims who said she, she found, you know, amateur sleuths in her laundry room one day looking around for evidence. And so I think if you don't recognize that that is potentially a direct impact of the way in which you report these stories, then you're being irresponsible. Right. Sometimes, though, the family of the victims are wrong about what happened. Actually, in our season two, we did not have cooperation with the victim's family um, because in that season, we were looking at a man whose conviction had been overturned and they thought he did it. And, um, and so they just didn't reply to me when I was reaching out saying, hey, I want you to know that I'm working on this. I don't want you to be surprised. That's my big thing. I don't want anyone to be surprised. Because you're a good person. Uh, well, but I mean, once the story started coming out, one of the daughters was very upset, called me up 
screamed at me, you know, swore at me, and I largely just kind of took it because I understand that, uh, that she's been through a trauma that I can't comprehend, and if I could take that for her, then that's fine. I'm pretty sure she's wrong, though. I think, I think she's probably wrong about his guilt. So. And the benefit of you, unfortunately, making her go through that could be, you know, exonerating a, a man who was wrongfully convicted, right. right? You know, I think a lot of the times that calculation isn't done by people. They think the entertainment value of putting out this story is sufficient to subject people to this, and it's not. Yeah, for the record, I did not record. I mean, I, that was yeah. not a conversation I was going to record. Right. Well, I do think, though, for the listener, the transparency around that is important. But I, I just want to, like, stay on this for a second, because I do think, I mean, as somebody who's written several true crime books, the story of a murder or a, a wrongful conviction or of an unsolved case, it begins with a victim and their family and their trauma. And very often, the response you'll get when you find some reason to report it, you know, not just this is what happened and I want more people to know, you know, the reason being accountability for the power structure or uh, an underreported story because it happened in a marginalized community, you have to make that decision. Does the idea of, of somebody feeling like you are opening an old wound outweigh the good you can do uh, in telling the story? Um, I honestly think there's almost no better example of this than in the dark because you have uh in season two in particular i think the show and and madeline and your reporting team does a really outstanding job not telling us that curtis flowers is innocent but showing us why he very well might be and also showing us what's in play for this community 100 percent believing he's guilty and what's in play is racism and this sort of a justice system built around white supremacy in the deep south and you have people on tape saying those saying those things the people who have been hurt by this case people whose family members or friends are are dead like how did you guys talk about that in in your in your room like you have people who are hurting who feel like something is being dug up that they don't want to talk about anymore but they're probably wrong. Like, how, how do you talk about that? In this story, like, we definitely had to sort of weigh the fact that, like, the story is sort of about this guy, Curtis Flowers on death row, and what it's been like for his family. But at the same time, you have, have these four victims and their families who might not want the story to be dredged up again you know, we still have to talk to them. Like, we obviously can't do this story without making attempts to talk to the victims' families, and so we wanted to make sure to include them in the, in the story. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's tricky because you have these sort of two sides. So, yeah, I mean, we just wanted to make sure that we included them, you know, because even though a big part of the story is about Curtis Flowers... We need to make, just make sure that we well, have the victim's families in the And interview. if the family is wrong, there hasn't been justice, and that is harming them as well, even if they don't know it. So that's something that you have to kind of keep in the back of your mind, even though, you know, it, it feels a little weird to be like, well, it's kind of for your own good, but it is kind of for your own good, because if this isn't really what happened, then somebody else got away with this crime, and, uh, and you don't have the answer that you think you have. 
and, and if I could just pump up how great your podcast is, it does this amazing job of taking an individual case and using it to shine light on systemic procedural issues. I mean, like, like you're talking about, like the inherent white supremacy of, of, you know, the American justice system essentially in the South, you know, without that case, it would be so hard to dehumanize all those, all those issues. Um, so I think it's absolutely valuable. And I think that's, again, you know, an element of the augmented or the ethical true crime genre is that it does speak to something larger and, and broader and, and systemic issues, whereas, you know, it's not just looking at one case for, for entertainment. Um, and it's funny talking about, you know, tricking people into listening to your podcast. I mean, we did Not that to a large... tricking them, encouraging them. Oh, it's them. tricking. You know what? I'm just going to be upfront. It's yeah. like, I, I have a guilty pleasure of reading the reviews of our podcast. And most of them are, are, are wonderful and great. And I, I, you know, I don't I don't dwell on the positive ones. I go down to the, the one-star reviews that say things like, I thought this would be a, a, a serial killer podcast. What's all of this gay stuff? Oh. Um, and there's so much of that. And I'm like, you can yeah, just we fire did. that listener. You don't need them. Well, but, but I actually do appreciate that. I, I bet there's a lot of people who tuned in expecting more of an entertainment based, you know, serial killer podcast who ended up going down this, this garden path of queer rights going back 40 years. And I hopefully learning something significant about, um, you know, the origin of, of, you know, that struggle and, um, and sort of the, the problems that still linger today. And I think we did that. I, I have heard from a lot of people who appreciated that, who appreciated being tricked to some degree. Yeah, you get your vegetables with your ice cream. That's what, yeah. <laughs> now, um, Connie, one of the things that you do in your show, in both seasons of your show, that I love, because we talked a little bit about it earlier, there are some very scary things about being a journalist. There is nothing scarier, at least in my experience, than knocking on somebody's door yeah, yeah, when terrible. you have difficult questions for them. Or in just trying to have a conversation with somebody who's not expecting it. And there is a protracted scene in your show where you're literally sitting in a van outside and yeah. we hear you saying like, I don't want to do this. I was really hoping he wasn't going to come home. <laughs> like secretly in my like heart of hearts, I was like, if he just doesn't come, like we just, we can just go back to the hotel and we can like have dinner and it'll be okay. Like, you know, <laughs> like how late are we going to wait? Like, you know, and, but he did eventually come home. Do you hear, if you ever heard a story that wasn't well reported, the missteps that people make when they just think it's okay and they're not afraid? I mean, do you think that that sort of sense of fear is important in doing it right and in doing it well? I don't profess to um, even say that I'm doing it well or, or right. You know, I mean, I feel like that even the conversations around families, um, I feel like I struggle with these things all of the time. And for me, there's, they're not black and white issues or it's so complicated um, and, and I, yeah, I mean, I think that we're guided by this feeling of responsibility that we need to ask these questions of these people because that is part of the journalism and you have to do that if you're going to continue to report this story. But I feel like Marnie, like I, I like even in the second season when we're in front of Cleo's adopted mother's house and we're going to go knock on her door and, and that's another example of a family member who didn't want us to bring up these painful memories, which is completely valid. Um, but I, like, I joke that Marnie was like, it was like, I was like, do you think we should do this? I'm not sure. And we're having this conversation like for an hour in the car. And, you know, she's being very supportive. Uh, but in the end, she's like kicking me out of the car door. Like you've got, like, you have to do it basically. Um, no, those are very difficult things to do. And to be honest, I really dislike them. I, I did that in Florida once and we got kicked off of somebody's property and the police were called on us. But we had to be the people who asked the difficult questions because that's part of our job. 
and it's it's part of the journalism, but it's not something that I I would ever I think I'll ever like or enjoy. I don't know. Do you guys? I don't wake up in the morning and go ambush day. <laughs> no, I have to like psych myself up every single time. We call them unscheduled interviews at CBC. <laughs> you know what? I, I in the course of reporting this this story, I spoke to a lot of people who um, were friends and family of these of these dead men who said that they were approached by other journalists who were questioning them as though they were, you know, the elected officials, like they were, you know, the town mayor, you know, they went in, some journalists go into these interviews, like they're accountability interviews, like they need to get something from this victim's friend or, or, or family member. And, and I think it's just like, it, you really have to think about how you're approaching these interviews. Like there has to be a level of care there so that you don't leave that person worse off than when you showed up, right? You, you still need to have, I think you have some duty of care to these people. And I think journalists who don't appreciate that are doing a real disservice. I mean, you also get, more useful information. I mean, you get more flies with honey, I guess, if you're looking to catch flies. Um, you know, I think you do better when you consider the impact this is having on them and speak to them, um, you know, with compassion and empathy as opposed to going in there just to get your clip and, and, and you know, fucking off after that. Well, in, um, in the dark, you have some unscheduled interviews, um, which... Most of them. <laughs> yes, but which you... It, there are some situations where it, the right thing to do is let the person who is wrong just talk so that the audience can hear what it is they're saying. And then there are times where you do need to challenge what they're saying because your reporting says otherwise. That is kind of the hallmark of what happened with our friend Doug Evans, the district attorney in the dark. Um, talk about like how do you get as a team get Madeline to do that. I mean, because it's hard. That it's, made me so uncomfortable listening to that. <laughs> I mean, he's calling her a little lady. He's, this has happened to you too. He's being completely condescending. He's telling, he's saying things that aren't, you know, based on your reporting, aren't true. And, but for the listener's sake and for the journalism's sake, she has to push, she has to ask. Do you guys give her like a bowl of steroids before she goes in to do Like, how do you guys handle that? I mean, she's amazing. (laughs) She's just really good at this also. Um, And I mean, I've actually learned a lot from her about how to approach this kind of interview because I think it's really like, I think we try to think of it as like not a confrontation. Like it's really just, it's another interview. It's another conversation. And you're going there to to genuinely ask questions. Like it's it's not supposed to be a gotcha moment. It's supposed to be like, well, what about this? And, you know, like maybe they're going to have a great answer for that that you haven't even thought about. So I think really like going into it with like a kind of open mind, not necessarily like not as though you know what they're going to say and really just reacting in the like listening to what they're actually saying and, and taking it as a conversation. Amber, have you ever made a big mistake, an ethical error in judgment that you wish you could redo, undo, uh, maybe even after the reporting came out, have you ever thought I could have handled that differently? We could have done that differently. Yeah, yeah. I would say um, how I approach people has changed since—not really since the podcast began, but since my reporting began. Um, this idea that I don't want to surprise people came after surprising some people and realizing, like, I don't need to do that, and I needed to be more. Like, there's this thing when you're a young journalist that you're you're. Um, insecure about what you're doing and you're trying to protect your story. But if you do that at the expense of uh, letting your sources know precisely what you're reporting, then you might make a mistake, you know? So I've, I've changed a lot of things. I think the biggest thing I've adopted is just trying to be as transparent as possible. 
I'm really mindful when I'm talking to somebody who is not an elected official. I walk them through the process. You know, this is, this is what's going to happen. It's going to come out on this day. Um, you might get some people who bother you on social media. I just want you to be prepared for that, all that stuff. No, you can't read it in advance. <laughs> no, you cannot read it in advance. Why do people still ask that? People but I, that I do. I go through, like, especially with Cleo's siblings, we, I went through the podcast and each episode exactly what was going to happen because this is not, like, this is their life. This is, you know, and this is their family's story. This is their actual, these are really intense things. So, um, and especially, obviously, because April uh, had had memory issues because she had years of electric shock therapy to deal with her her bipolar depression. Um, but so we went, we actually like we went through every part of the podcast so she would know exactly what was coming. And same with Christine and Johnny because I didn't want them to hear like we had already told them what we had been uncovering as as it was happening. Uh, but when they hear it all together with music and it's made to, you know, sound a lot more dramatic than me being just on the phone with them saying, you know, hello or, or whatever, um, you know, I really wanted them to be prepared for that. I will say I did learn one thing that I won't do again from season one, and that is trust the uh, police. Oh, yeah. Uh, because to my face, they were very much like, yes, we are into doing this. We're, you know, and they're acting like they were wanting to be helpful. And then uh, two years later, I'm almost three, three years later, I'm like, so what the fuck's been done? Nothing. So I I won't fall for that again. Yeah, we had had a bit of that. We had had sent a request into the police asking for a list of the cold cases they were reopening. Um, We always were making our own list, but we kind of wanted to cross-reference theirs and see which ones were open, which ones were. Um, And we had set up a meeting and it kind of took, quite a bit of time, you know, there was delays, delays, suddenly like, you know, one month turned into like three, uh, we finally get a date to go sit down with the head of the cold case team and we're all excited, you know, we're sitting in the, in the office being like, that's going to change the whole podcast once they give us all this information. We get there, we sit down and, the, and you know, the police officer, the head of the cold case team kind of goes, oh yeah, we can't, we can't give you any names. We can't give you a list of any of the cases we're reopening. No, we're not going to comment or confirm whether or not any of those cases are open or, or closed. You know, these are active investigations and uh, we're not going to compromise them. Like, it was so frustrating. Like, I, was, I, was, I went outside and talked to my producer and I was like, I was so close to just ripping the paper out of his hand and running away and trying to read it myself. <laughs> um, but no, and it was, it was such a... And we got back to the office and we went, oh God, like, we have nothing from that. Nothing whatsoever. We have to just build the rest of it ourselves. Hey, but that, that's telling, you know... Yeah that they won't help that still informs your reporting. Uh, We just have a minute or so left. So I have a tough question for you guys. It may not be tough. If you were the executive producer of every true crime podcast that came out between now and forever, what is one thing you would tell your aspiring journalist or journalist or podcaster to never, ever do in their storytelling? Assume... So you have to report the shit out of everything, and that means that you have to push back against your own assumptions and try to be mindful when you are pre-deciding something. Yeah, I mean, I actually I would tell them, be very willing to just not do the show. Like, be very willing to just drop that case. If it's not important, if you don't think it's going to move the needle in any direction, if you are suddenly realizing you're going to cause a lot of pain without a lot of benefit, just don't do it. Just pick another story. There is so many stories out there that need attention. Maybe there doesn't have to be another John Benet Ramsey podcast. Maybe. Natalie? <laughs> uh, I would say try to have a, 
a question, a real question that you actually want to know the answer to? I, I would say that your point about how every crime, um, behind every crime is a family and a trauma and to be aware of that trauma and how it continues to impact the people who live those experiences. Well, this has been a dream for me. Um, these are four big thumbs up podcasts. If you listen to Crime Writers On, you know what that means. I can't thank you guys enough for having this conversation with me. And uh, if anybody has any questions for anyone on the panel, I think we can just hang out for a few minutes, if that's okay, and chat. Um, but thank you all for coming, and we really appreciate it. And thank all of you. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. For more CBC Original Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash originalpodcasts.